0: You figure out what the standard is. And when you figure out what the standard is, you exceed it. You don't just, you know, barely make it. You just don't meet the standard. You exceed the standard. And and so that's that's what he, he saw. That's how change occurred with, you know, his son. So that in 1961, Kevin, when I was born, blacks could not go on Fort Lauderdale Beach. Blacks could not go on Palm Beach Island but 50 years later i was sworn in as the united states congressional representative of florida's 22nd district that included fort lauderdale beach and palm beach island that's what my dad saw was possible with just investing in the the person that he had the most
1: influence and impact on that was his son hey folks thanks for checking out the 21 gun podcast the official podcast of Reverend warriors i am your host as always Kevin Sullivan, special thanks to the drinking bro. Hold on, let me try it like this. <clears throat> special thanks to the drinking bros. <laughs> that was a horrible... Attempt to sound like Ross Patterson, but um, thanks to those guys, uh, Dan Holloway, for having us out last week. Just getting our message out there is is the most important thing, and they have a lot of listeners, and they were very kind to have uh, Jeremy Walton and myself out there on their show this past, I think it was Wednesday. I can't remember. I can't remember. Um, the past two weeks and the next two weeks are so freaking busy. I don't even know what day it is right now, um, and to prove that fact, I was supposed to publish this, and I went to publish this episode, and I realized I didn't record any any intro, so it would have just gone right into an a, a interview, and you'd have been like, what the hell, Kevin? Where's your Where's your typical uh, introduction? Because I know you love hearing my voice. I know the whole point of this, the whole reason why you listen to um, 21 Gun is just to, to hear me whisper in your ear. <laughs> All right, that was creepy. Um, we have one more hike this year. That's it. December 14th over in Key West, Florida. That's in, I don't know, six days, five days, whatever Saturday, December 14th is. Uh, should be a good, good showing. I know a lot of people that are heading down there. Finding a room is going to be difficult. So if you haven't set yourself up yet for a place to stay down there, you're probably screwed, but try it out anyways. You can still get tickets. You can still uh, go to this hike. It's the last one of the year. Big changes coming next year. You know, we're, we're, we went. With 38 hikes this past year, we're going to go with, I think, 60 uh, for 2020. So 2020 is going to be a benchmark year for Reverend Wars, and we're really looking forward to it. Also this weekend on the 13th is the uh, Sequins and Silkies event. I guess they're calling it a sunset celebration and holiday dinner. Unfortunately, if you haven't got your tickets, uh, from what I understand... Uh, Deadline was December 1st, so if you're going, I expect uh, every dude that I know to wear his uh, silkies and maybe a tuxedo top. And it says here, and it says here, flip-flops, boots, or stilettos. So um, I expect Donnie O'Malley to be wearing a pair of stilettos and Nate McDonald, which I I would assume is just kind of standard attire for those two. I kid. All right. Tonight's episode is with Colonel Allen West. If you don't know who Colonel Allen West is, then call 911 and have them drag your ass out of the rock that you've been living under for the past two decades. Colonel West is an American political commentator, retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel. He's an author and a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He represented Florida's 22nd congressional district in the House from 2011 to 2013. Colonel West has a great story. He grew up in the, literally in the shadow of Martin Luther King and uh, ended up representing a district in Florida which 50, 60 years earlier, he, wouldn't, he and his family wouldn't be able to swim at the beaches because of the color of their skin. So he's got a great story, um, great attitude. He was an absolute pleasure to have on the show, and without further ado, Colonel Allen West. This interview is strictly about the fact that you're a successful veteran, okay? We have a lot of brothers and sisters who are out there struggling. My hope is that highlighting stories such as yours is that we can inspire these vets to see that post-military life can be challenging, right? Just just like we face challenges when we're in uniform, but with a little planning, we can have mission success in the civilian world
0: absolutely
1: so your resume of service to this country is remarkable from military service to service in the congress to your current run to texas republican chair where do you think the notion of a lifetime of national service began
0: well that legacy began with my father my father was a corporal in the united states army during world war ii and he passed in 1986 he's still my hero and will always be because here was a man that went and served this great nation at a time when this nation didn't afford him all the rights and privileges that it did to others. My older brother was a Lance Corporal, United States Marine Corps in Vietnam. He served there, uh, was wounded at Khe Sanh. My dad was also wounded in World War II. And at the age of 15, my dad challenged me to be the first officer in our family. And uh, I accepted that challenge and started in high school junior ROTC at uh, Henry Grady High School in Atlanta, Georgia. Graduated there. Uh, I ended up being the cadet battalion commander of my high school junior ROTC program. Went on to the University of Tennessee. And on 31 July, 1982, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant, United States Army. And uh, it, it's still a day that brings tears to my eyes. When I look at the pictures of my dad standing off my right shoulder and my mom standing off my left shoulder, and they pinned those second lieutenant bars on me. So. That's how it all got started, and also my mother did 25 years plus civilian service with the Sixth Marine Corps District Headquarters in Atlanta. So they were both buried with uh, full military honors, and they rest in peace together in Marietta National Cemetery.
1: Awesome, it's a uh, it's a common theme. I would say out of everyone I've interviewed, we're probably at 95 percent, maybe even higher. Who it's it's just a family tradition.
0: Yeah, and and I I forgot to mention you know my. My wife, who is a uh, naturalized citizen, she was born and spent her first like 10 years in Jamaica. But her dad, my father-in-law, also two tours of duty, 24 years in the United States Army in Vietnam. He's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And my own nephew, my older brother's son, is a major in the United States Army now, and he has had three combat tours of duty. So, you know, that's just the American way. That's what sustains this great nation, this family tradition, this family business.
1: Absolutely. And it seems like if you look in the past, we'll just bring up maybe the the early uh, 20th century. it, It was... Everyone, everyone served, right? Whether you were Rockefeller or Kennedy or the coal miner in Pennsylvania. (laughs) That's right. That's right. The current percentage of of population, and we'll just look at GWAT veterans, right? Global War and Terror, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and all the other places we were. It's down to about a half a percent. Do you think that'll damage this, this American tradition of military service at all?
0: Well, the American tradition of military service continues on because, as you just said, there is something that is rooted in the families. I mean, I get out traveling about and, you know, you hear about, you know, second and third generation of uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen, young men and young women following in previous generations' footsteps to go on to West Point, uh, Annapolis, or the Air Force Academy. So that continues on. What I am concerned about is that, that separation that is growing between military service and civilian society and how a lot of people are just starting to look at the military as just an extension of civilian society and they're trying to, you know, bring us closer into being more like them. So when you look at even the amount of people that are serving on Capitol Hill that has served in the military and taken that incredible oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. Those numbers are dwindling. Once upon a time, you couldn't be an elected official in the United States of America. You certainly couldn't be president if you hadn't served in uniform. So I think that's something that is somewhat disconcerting to a lot of people. I've seen a lot of times when people have commented uh, on social media, Facebook, you know, Twitter, whatever. That we need to have presidents that have military experience again, because the most important uh, role is commander in chief.
1: I think I think war too, and it doesn't have to be war. We'll just say military service, but war just happens to bring out, I think, the best uh, of people. But it, it it almost creates folk heroes like Audie Murphy, Sergeant York. modern, modern days would be like Michael Murphy, General sure. Madison, and you know what? Yeah, I'd even put yourself on that list because everyone, uh, everyone... <laughs> that's <a stretch>. okay. <laughs> but I mean, we, we've, we hear these people and these heroes become role models of behavior for our youth. When these, these heroes are there, they just become fewer and fewer and more disconnected. Do we lose something as a culture with that?
0: I think we do lose something as a culture with that. I, I mean, I've often told folks that, you know, when I see kids walk around with, you know, jerseys of, football players or baseball players or basketball players and their name on the back. Why don't we see kids out in camouflage jerseys and say U.S. Army, U.S. Marine Corps, U.S. Navy, U.S. Coast Guard, U.S. Air Force? Because those are the real heroes. It's not about throwing a ball. It's not about shooting a ball. It's not about hitting a ball or how fast you can run the people that stand on freedom's ramparts each and every day, you know, those should be the ones that we, we we should elevate. Those should be the ones that we see as our heroes in our in our culture and society. Not, you know, disaffected, you know, spoiled, you know, sports and Hollywood and entertainment
1: elitists. What, what's funny as you bring that up is I, I work in medicine and I trained under a doctor who was a Vietnamese and he came over after the fall of Saigon. He was telling me as a child that, You know, you're talking Vietnam, which was not a modern society, and all their heroes growing up, he said, were generals. They were the great generals. There were no sports. There was no celebrity. He knew colonels who fought in certain battles against the French, and that just blew my mind.
0: Yeah, well, that that was their culture. And, you know, you think about it, once upon a time, that was our culture here in the United States of America, and even still... You know, you think about a lot of those Hollywood actors, a lot of those sports figures, even Elvis Presley wore a uniform once right. upon a time. So we have lost that connection. And, you know, that's why when Nike came out and they chose Colin Kaepernick to be the one that talked about stand up for something, even in me sacrificing, I would have picked Pat Tillman.
1: Absolutely.
0: To be, to be that spokes that spokesperson, because he was a guy at the height of of his professional football career, who after 9-11, he volunteered to become an enlisted infantry soldier. And not even that, an airborne ranger Mm -hmm. who tragically lost his life due to friendly fire in Afghanistan. That's that's who we should be elevating. And again, it's as if we, we don't remember that. You know, Chris Kyle, Chris Kyle, who tragically lost his life trying to help out another veteran, his funeral should have been broadcast all across the United States of America. It should have been almost an hour of mourning for this country that we lost our greatest sniper ever. But yet, what ends up happening is you have groups that were out protesting the
1: showing of his movie
0: that depicted his life. And so those are the type of things that concern me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and rightly so. Lastly, I guess on this subject is, as a father and a a combat veteran, you know, knowing the process of becoming a member of the military, the stresses of combat, the difficulties we can face reintegrating into society, how do we pass on this tradition? I mean, I I feel slightly guilty because of my own personal issues resulting from service. How can I knowingly put my children to that position?
0: Well, it's not that you knowingly put yourself... Your children into that position. You know, I have two daughters, 26 and 22. My oldest daughter is a physician assistant. The youngest daughter is a flight attendant. And I never pushed the military on them. But what I wanted them to understand that they must respect and honor and regard those that make it possible for them to live in this incredible land and the liberties and the freedoms that they have. And so that's how you can pass it on. Now, if your son or your daughter or whomever decide that they wanna be part of the military, then you, know, you just show them even more love. But y- y- your thing is to, uh, I always tell people about that, that closing vignette to the movie Saving Private Ryan, when Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller has been shot there at the bridge over the river and he calls Matt Damon's character close and he, he whispers you know, two words to Private Ryan, He says, earn this. And I think that what we need to do is wherever we go as veterans, you know, with our children and our families and our communities and our churches, we should, when people say, thank you for your service, we should respond by saying, earn this, because that's truly how we restore the respect, the dignity and the honor of military service in this great nation. And if you recall, at the end of that movie, it, you know, fast forwarded to the older Private Ryan standing before Captain Miller's you know, gravestone there at uh, at Normandy and he turned to his wife and he said, tell me that I was a good man. Tell me that I led a good life because that's what earning this is all about. Earning the sacrifice and commitment. In that case, that squad of Rangers who lost their lives trying to, you know, save him and get him back to his mother since she had already lost three of her other sons. But every day people should be earning the commitment of our men and women in uniform. And I think that you know, Kevin. If if our veterans saw that, they would we wouldn't have 20 to 22 veterans committing suicide every day. Yeah, because people would be going out and they would be personally trying to find a homeless or a jobless veteran, because they would try to earn the sacrifice that that veteran had made for this country.
1: Sure, and maybe they could understand the respect that veterans have. For symbolism too. So let's go back to Kaepernick, who, you know, kneels at the flag. And, and to some people, alright, yeah, it's his First Amendment right. Okay. But to a veteran, you know, when we see someone in uniform, or when we see the Medal of Honor, or when we see the American flag what we are seeing as a veteran is the thousands and thousands of people that came before me who maybe bled and died on a field without any fanfare, just looking up at the sky and realizing this was their last breath. And I carry that with me everywhere I go. And and I don't think you can get a true appreciation for that unless you find yourself in a situation of service. And that doesn't have to be military, it can be any sort of service to the country.
0: Well, you know, I would have taken young Colin Kaepernick and flown him over into Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and let him spend some time, and maybe even throw a football yeah. with some soldiers, sailors, airman, marines, and coast guardsmen on one of those remote outposts where the American flag is flying. And and I would say, you know, to him, you really want to take a knee when these young men are standing up for you, or I would take him to all national cemetery or any national cemetery. Or I would share with him, you know, the day that, you know, that flag was draped over the coffin of my mother and my father and what it meant to me and what their sacrifice and service meant to all of us in our family. And so, again, I think that we need to challenge people with those simple two words, earn this.
1: Mm -hmm. How do you think uh, Mr. Kaepernick would have fared growing up in Atlanta in 1960s?
0: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Uh, I would say that if he had a mother and father like me, he would be this guy. Yeah. But but for whatever reason, you know, I don't know what causes him to look at America with a, a very, you know, dark specter and, and you know, damaging perspective. Again, my dad served this country when this country did not respect him as a man and did not give him all the liberties and freedoms. But when my dad told me at fifteen, that there was no greater honor than to wear the uniform of this country. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't vindictive. He just wanted to see his second son become an officer in the army that he loved.
1: Now, did he have the foresight to see that this country could change and that it's basically, it's woven into our fabric that, yes, we've made mistakes, but we also know how to shift and make adjustments and become better?
0: I think that my dad, as he taught me, he knew that he had the foresight that with opportunity comes change and the first opportunity he got me to understand was that it's about all you know what you put between your ears mm-hmm. and you know, with the quality of education you can rise to achieve whatever heights that you seek uh, and so that was how he told me that with opportunity comes change with opportunity comes advancement with opportunity and education no one can really hold you back. You can only hold yourself back because as he taught me, you figure out what the standard is. And when you figure out what the standard is, you exceed it. You don't just you know, barely make it. You just don't meet the standard, you exceed the standard. And, and so that's, that's what he, he saw. That's how change occurred with you know, his son. So that in 1961, Kevin, when I was born, blacks could not go on Fort Lauderdale beach. Blacks could not go on Palm Beach Island. But 50 years later, I was sworn in as the United States congressional representative of Florida's 22nd district that included Fort Lauderdale Beach and Palm Beach Island. That's what my dad saw was possible with just investing in the the person that he had the most influence and impact on. That was his son.
1: Let's uh, shift gears just a little bit here. So we'll go back to when you got the the those those coveted golden bars on your shoulder. I, I was there myself up in University of New Hampshire, I got my uh, uh, second lieutenant commission in the Air Force. When you were commissioned, Vietnam, Wasn't that far back in history, right? It was still fresh in the Americans' minds. Yeah, 1982. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because if you look at, okay, 82, let's say we're out in 73. I know there's kind of a gray area there. But so nine years previous, nine years ago was 2010, right? Iraq (laughs) is still very much in our mind in Afghanistan. So, you know, using that to kind of gauge gauge history there, what role did that play in your decision or, or did it play a role at all?
0: Well, when you have uh, two generations of men, you know, my dad and my older brother, that have been in combat uh, and, and they, you know, got me to understand, explain what it means to be a leader in tough situations and how you should relate to your, your soldiers or those that have been placed in, in under your charge. That was very important for me and for them to tell me that, you know, one day your day is going to come. That call is going to come. And for me, it came in, uh, what was that, 1991, nine years later with Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And, you know, I had to pick up and deploy and go to the Persian Gulf. So I think that, you know, their experiences helped me to be, you know, ready for the experience that was coming. And in those years after Vietnam, without a doubt, we had to have a healing process. And I remember when I got back from uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, because my, my dad had, had passed away, mom was still alive. She died three years later. But the first phone call I made when I got back from Desert Storm was to my older brother. And to him, I said, hey, we did it, we got it, and you guys were a part of it. Because I remember how he was treated when he came back from Vietnam. And I remember him taking off his Marine Class A uniform and throwing it in, in, in the closet. And I picked it up and hung it up for him. Uh, so what we did in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, was that we finally put away that dark specter of Vietnam, and we had finally regained that honor and respect of our military, because people saw us front and center. So that is the connection for me from you know that generation of my older brother that went off to Vietnam. And I still today, when I see a Vietnam veteran, I always tell them, welcome home, because too many of
1: them didn't hear that. Yeah. Yeah, that was terrible. Do you think it played a role on your peers' decision to or not to join?
0: Uh, maybe for some. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't say one way or the other, but then that comes back to what you and I talked about earlier is that tradition within you know certain families. There's always going to be people that will raise their right hand and step up and do what it takes to keep this this great nation free and and understand it. it may be 1% or maybe 2%, but that's the best damn one or two percent that this country can produce. Yeah, and I think that's what's special about it. I love it when I hear folks, you know, use that political tagline about one percenters. You know, you and I are the one percenters today, mm-hmm. and and we should tell people that, and we should tell people how honored we are to be the true one percenters.
1: Yeah, Tim Kennedy, who's kind of a, a well-known, um, I think he's a Green Beret, but he said, and he's a, a mixed martial arts fighter, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast and said it's harder to get into. Uh, the military than it is to get in college, and I stopped and yeah. And, and yeah, it's it's so obvious, yeah. but it, it didn't dawn on me. It's like, wow, you're right. Yeah, I mean, be,
0: because we're looking at the whole person concept, mm-hmm. and when you think about it, I mean, even now you got parents that are out there pencil whipping things for their kids to get <laughs> into college. You know, can't nobody pencil whip it for you to get into the military. No. Nope. You gotta do it yourself. Nope. And that's the beauty of it. It is it is all about building individual character.
1: In your your 22 years of service, what I'm sure you saw a lot of changes in the military itself. But what would you say was the most profound change between the pre and the post 9/11 military? Oh
0: boy, that's an interesting uh, question. I will tell you that you know I came into the military that when we transitioned from you know one one three armored personnel carriers to Bradley fighting vehicles from the M60 tank. To the, uh, to the M1A1 Abrams from the uh, Cobra attack helicopters to Apaches, uh, the multiple launch rocket system. And what I saw was the incredible professionalism of the young soldier, you know, just increase. The, the technical skills, the competence, the abilities, you know, I will tell you that there, there are corporals out there that could probably, you know, run any business because I saw them go in and, and, and you know, hold meetings with, with sheikhs or tribal leaders. I saw the, the incredible competence level, the, the, the initiative, the, the technical capabilities of, of our young men and women who volunteered to come to our military increased exponentially as we invested more into our military.
1: Uh, each war kind of has its trademark effect on oh. veterans. You know, World War I was the trenches and the technology, and World War II was the fanaticism of the Japanese and the Germans. Vietnam, you could say it was the the insurgency and the juggle warfare or the lack of support from home. These These all help shape the veteran. It, it kind of turns us into who we are. What do you think is the hallmark of the the global war on on terror soldier? And when I say soldier, I mean airmen and sailors and all that. Yeah, yeah, the
0: the troop on the ground. I think that what is is much different is that the catastrophic injuries that would have normally resulted in death, our young men and women are surviving them. and they have challenges from that. I, I mean, once upon a time, look, in the Civil War, I mean, you lost, you lost the leg. I mean, chances are you're going to get gangrene, you're going to die.
1: Horribly. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. But now we have, you know, quadruple amputees
1: mm-hmm.
0: that are continuing on with, with life. And so the, that has created a lot of incredible challenges and, and challenges to persevere be, because these young men and women normally wouldn't be around. And for those of us, that have to witness these these tragedies and these horrific injuries, it leaves a scar on us uh, for for quite some time. You know, I, I will tell you that, you know, having been in the three different combat zones, and you know, I retired from the army with the same amount of holes that I came into into the army with. Uh, you, you just ask yourself, you know, Lord, what was special about me? What what why wasn't it me? Uh, but. I think our responsibility is that we must tell the story so that our comrades that we lost in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, wherever, they're not forgotten. And then our brothers and sisters that, you know, have made it back, but they still have these injuries, some seen and some unseen, we got to continue to wrap our arms around them. So that's why I think what you're doing here with this podcast, the organization you're with, is so important. That's why, you know, I wear this little you know, ring around my finger on the salute hand, trigger finger, the hashtag
1: 22 kill ring. Mm. Every
0: day, every minute reminded me that we've got to do something about veteran suicide in the United States of America.
1: Four words that I think are lacking in our training uh, when we go into the military is your career will end. (laughs) Did you ever have that foresight that this is going to end someday?
0: Well, you know that it is going to end someday, but, you know, for whatever reason, you believe that you're the master of your own uh, destiny, which you're not. I mean, God is. And so, you know, most people that are veterans know my story and the action that I took uh, when I was there as a battalion commander in Iraq, you know, firing the the pistol over the Iraqi uh, police officer's head to to get information. And that set off a a completely different chain of events. Sure. Yeah. And so I was removed from command. I had to go through an Article 32 hearing. There was the potential of me going to a court martial and being in prison in Fort Leavenworth for eight years. And I, I will never forget that, you know, when they read the charges to me and it was the United States of America against Lieutenant Colonel West. And, and it just, I cried that night because I was thinking the country that I love so much, the country that my dad served, that my older brother served, that they asked me to serve, is bringing charges against me because I did what my 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 dad, my older brother said to take care of your troops when you're in a combat zone. And, and they, will, they will always go out and complete the mission for you. So that was very hard for me because, you know, when everything was rectified, I had an Article 15 non-judicial punishment read to me, $5,000 fine. And when I redeployed back from Iraq, I asked my wife, very simple, what do you want to do? And she said, you know, it's, it's probably time that, you know, we, we leave. It's 22 years. You've, you've had a great career. You've done everything that you possibly could do. But things are changing. And so right then, I mean, you're faced with, you know, one minute, you know, you, you leave off to go to Iraq. You're... A combat battalion commander, you have great OERs, you know, talking about early promotion to general, and that's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about, you know, okay, after this uh, combat tour of duty, where am I going to head to next? And now you're packing up your quarters and getting ready to transition out of the military as soon as your retirement date is approved. Hmm. And, but the thing is that you've got to, if, if you are true to your oath, you still find a way to serve this great nation even though you're out of the military, you find a way to serve your fellow veterans. You, 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 because that's the core of who we are. You know, It goes back to that verse from uh, Isaiah six and eight, where Isaiah standing before the host of the Lord, and they say, who, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah stands up and says, here am I, send me. And that commitment, that oath of service doesn't end just because we take our uniform off, Kevin. If it ends when you take a uniform off, then that means that you really didn't believe in those that you took. And so that's why I believe that our veterans should be the ones that are going out and looking at how they can be the civilian leaders, the elected leaders that we need for this great nation, because they are the ones that have been willing to lay down their lives for others. That's an incredible commitment. Abraham Lincoln called it the last full measure of devotion. When he uh, gave his Gettysburg Address, two hundred and forty-three simple little words. So, no, I, I wasn't thinking about it, wasn't planning <laughs> about it, and but then all of a sudden, you know, oops, yeah. it, it happened. And what am I going to do? And so, but you you got to continue to have that servant's heart, and and I think that's an important thing that that we all need to think about. And I think that's what. We veterans have to do for our brothers and sister veterans. We have to show that encouragement. Okay, we understand that you you've been injured. Now let's figure out how you get back into the fight. Not the fight of, of the combat, but the fight of the ideological battle and that we face here in the United States of America. The fight to make sure that our veterans' rights are taken care of. The fight to make to make sure that what we you know supported and uh, you know took an oath to that uh, we continue to, to honor that oath. So I think that that's where our community has to be so tight. That's why when I look at the VFWs and American Legions, you know, we can't allow them to die off. And yeah. we have to talk to the, you know, your generation and, you know, to an extent, my generation also. We got to continue to have that support there so that these posts don't die down and the memory of veterans don't go away.
1: Sure. Uh, this next question might be a little redundant from what we just talked about, but it, I ask every single person. It's it's my trademark question. Day one, as a civilian, your your alarm goes off, your head comes off the pillow. Now what? You go do PT. <laughs> Were you doing it? Yeah, I
0: still do PT. As a matter of fact, uh, I uh, I'll be getting up to tomorrow morning at four thirty to try to knock out. A few miles before I head out to a seven o'clock uh, breakfast uh, event. So it, it's that routine. And, and I think that's another thing that veterans have to do. You got to continue to try to take care of yourself. Okay. You can't say, hey, nobody's around telling me to get up and go run or whatever. I'm going to eat and do whatever I want. And then next thing you know, you have health problems. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important that we continue to take care of ourselves so that uh, we don't look at ourselves in the mirror and say, man, I used to be Thor. Now I look like Wimpy. Okay? <laughs> so.
1: uh, how did you find yourself running for Congress? I mean, do you just say, I'm going to run for Congress, or do the powers that be say, hey, I like this guy, and they approach you?
0: You know, it was incredible. There was one woman. Her name was Donna Brossamer. She now lives in Colorado, and she gave me the ultimate challenge. I was on a break uh, coming back from Afghanistan for about 10 days. And she wanted to meet with me. I I knew of her. She was a a local political uh, activist and a little bit of a a consultant. And she uh, said, you should run for Congress when you come back from your civilian military uh, uh, assignment in in Afghanistan. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about going back over there and staying alive so the Taliban doesn't doesn't whack me. I'm I'm down in Kandahar. (laughs) She said, yeah. But, and this is the line, she said, the oath that you took does not end just because you took off your uniform. And that gut checked me, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, I I thought about that so deeply, uh, flying back to Afghanistan. And uh, I ended up calling her from Afghanistan after much thought and prayer, and you know, talking with the the wife and everything. And I decided that when I got back from Afghanistan, I would endeavor to to run for United States Congress. and and again this was not something that i planned to do but when you get that call to serve you got to answer if if that oath was truly meaningful you're going to answer
1: what was it like emotionally mentally physically to have your service record made very public and criticized by folks who may not have served. How do you endorse someone basically taking your career and smearing you? Well,
0: I mean, you gotta be bigger than that, you know? And and that's where my Christian faith comes in because in Isaiah chapter 54 verse 17, it says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn for that is the heritage of those who love the Lord. So the most important thing is that I still have my soldiers that I served with, that uh, you know, send me text messages, Facebook messages, you know, and they continue to thank me, and they continue to tell me about you know what's going on in their lives or what have you, uh, and that's what means the world to me. Not not the the comments from some you know hidden stranger sitting in the basement in their pajamas <laughs> eating you know Cheetos and drinking you know Mountain Dew. I don't care less about that person uh, because I know what I did, I know why I did it, and I know that uh, I, I ended up just absolutely fine. And I want to tell you this quick story about that because it kind of ties back into what you're saying about you know moving on after the military and what have you. You know, I went on to be a member of the United States House of Representatives and I was on the House Armed Services Committee. And of course, when you are you know, ramping up for the National Defense Authorization Act, you have all the different services, and the, the chiefs and the secretaries they come in and testify. Before the Armed Services Committee, as part of the authorization document and and the, you know the, the things the missions they're looking to be approved, well the day came for the Army, and who was the Chief of Staff of the Army at the time? It was four star General Raymond Odierno. Raymond Odierno was my division commander, <laughs> who read Article 15 against me <laughs> in his and you could tell that he was a little bit nervous about. Me sitting on one side as the congressional representative and he's testifying before me because, you know, we all get to ask that that question. We all get our five minutes. But I knew about a priority that he had, a program and an initiative that he had. It was a good program. It was a good thing for the Army. And my nephews, you know, like I said, was still serving in the Army. So when it came time for me, I set him up so he could talk positively about that program and why it should be supported. And so afterwards, he came up to me. And he looked at me and he said, very simply, I'm so very proud of you. And I looked at General Ordeana and I said, sir, you did what you thought you had to do. I did what I knew I had to do to protect my men. And look, we both ended up okay. And so I don't worry about people. I just stay focused on doing the right thing at the right time and that's it.
1: How did you prepare the civilians in your life for that, meaning your wife and your daughters? Oh, for running for Congress? Yeah, yeah. Because they're going to read was, some.
0: That was interesting because, you know, I, I have an incredibly thick skin, but, you know, when people start to go after, you know, your wife and, and your daughters, then, you know, that gets my dander up a little bit, like we say, down south. So they understand the, 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 the risk and the consequences. And, you know, now I'm running to be the chairman for the Republican Party of Texas because people have asked me. You know, just to get back into this game, get back and, and, and be a, uh, a leader to make sure that we can hold Texas and we can hold this nation. And so they understand their dad. Their dad has a sense of commitment and a servant's heart to this country. And they understand that their dad, their, her, her husband, wants to make sure that America is safe and secure for them. And uh, that's my commitment. And so that comes from having that open line of communication with your loved ones
1: and that's in really shifting gears here but Texas is an important state right now cuz you've got an an influx of, of folks from California going down there cuz their yeah, taxes it's like are t-
0: up in New Hampshire. Uh, I don't know if you still live there in New Hampshire but you know New Hampshire changed because yeah. of people fleeing out of Massachusetts. That's
1: exactly I was part of that. I was my my family moved away from uh, uh, the People's Republic of Massachusetts back in the <laughs> 80s and uh, live free or die in New Hampshire. It's kind of why I'm a, I'm a you know, libertarian at heart, just because that's, it's, it truly is in the New Hampshire blood to be, to be uh, uh, all about freedoms. Uh, no, I'm actually down in, in North Carolina right now.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. Fort Bragg area?
1: Yeah, I was stationed at Pope and I just stayed in the area.
0: I, I spent five years there, know it very well. Oh. Uh, we have house up by a Methodist college.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know exactly where that is. Yeah. Uh, I went to East Carolina University to be a physician oh, assistant. You're a yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a two-part question. How many of your your fellow members of Congress were veterans? Is that number growing, or is it just because more of us uh, aging out of service and finding ourselves moving on to things like that?
0: Uh, I, I, you know, back about 45, 50 years ago, the number was 70 to 73 percent of members of the House and Senate who had served in the military. I would say today, 15 to 16 percent, the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, probably single digit as far as percentage. Uh, I would say, you know, a little homework assignment for you. Look at the House Armed Services Committee. That's the largest committee. And the uh, House of representatives, 63 members, I think still, uh, and just pick out how many have ever served in the military. Uh, I was pretty shocked when I looked at that, and when I was up there, um, and and I think that number is is kind of getting a little better, but in a way, it's not getting getting better uh, as far as veterans serving, and and that's what we need. But not just in Congress, we need them in city council, we need them as school board, county commission, we need them at all levels. of of elected office because they bring that unique sense of leadership and a can-do attitude and spirit that this country needs right now, and and dedication to this country. So uh, I'm a big proponent and advocate for uh, military veterans running for office. Back in 2011, uh, I started a political action committee, a PAC called the Guardian Fund, uh, because the whole purpose was to get more veterans and more minorities, uh, conservatives, uh, up there on uh, on Capitol Hill.
1: All right, let's talk about other veterans. First thing is, a lot of people don't realize that that veteran suicide. It's not a modern dilemma. The suicide rate for veterans is always surpassed that of civilians, and and I think it's safe to say, especially, you know, now that I've served and then you know I've become a veteran and and have revisited you know, my past in, in combat and stuff, I, I realize it's an immensely complicated issue. For every veteran, there's a different story, different yeah. set of circumstances, different memories, different coping me- mechanisms. As a leader of soldiers, strictly in your own opinion, what would you say might be the root cause of this, this tragic thing?
0: I, you know, when, when I was uh, a battalion commander, there are only two of us in the entire battalion that have been in combat. It was myself and, my, and the command sergeant major, both going back to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And what I tried to get our troops to understand is that the person that you are here, when you set foot on those steps to, to climb up onto that, that aircraft for deployment, you gotta find a way to leave that person here and become that warrior, become that person that you've been training to be. And then somehow you have to be able to leave that person over there when you set your foot back on the steps to get on the airplane to redeploy back. That's a very tough thing. It's a very hard thing. And it takes a lot of open communications. It takes a lot of counseling. I think that we have not done a good job in the military by, you know, we're always in a rush, you know, to get you know, redeployed back, you know, get your equipment, get it cleaned up, get it turned in, get, in, get the guys on the airplane, get them back home. We don't give them that opportunity to kind of decompress. and and i think that's one of the critical things that we need to do is the decompression time over there in the in the combat zone and then when they get back here we need to have that decompression time to allow them to reintegrate uh, into the family and into the civilian environment too often we put them on this incredible wheel spinning wheel Mm -hmm. and the next you know they're getting ready to ramp up and go out for another deployment so we got to build back up our military forces so we make sure that our troops get that, you know, proper amount of decompression time, and it's also important that time to be with your 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 families because they need that as well, to, to for reunification and reintegration. So I think we just got to do a better job of of planning that out, and then also for those veterans that you know come back and they decide, you know, I'm going to punch out and go into the civilian society. We need to have that welcome wagon. Mm-hmm. That puts your arms around them, uh, other veterans, and, and you know, somehow, some way, there should be a system by which, you know, veteran service organizations should know when a, a new veteran is moving into a, a certain community, being it straight out of the military or he's, you know, moving from another place. They should know when a veteran is, is moving so that, again, you can welcome them, you can put their arms around them, and you can give them that sense of, of camaraderie again.
1: They haven't studied the numbers in in a while, but do you have any idea if the problem's getting better or is it getting worse?
0: Uh, I just read a recent report, and I'm very good friends with a gentleman by the name of Chad Robishaw. Oh yeah, he, yeah, he's going to be on the show. Yeah, yeah Mighty Oaks, uh, and I'm on his uh, advisory board. Chad is telling me that you start to see it, you know, teak back up just a little bit. Oh, you know, we only talk about things when it's a crisis mode and then all of a sudden we don't talk about it, you got to continue to engage this issue. You just can't let it go away. And and like I said, there are some VA hospitals out there doing fantastic, you know, yeoman's work, but there are still some that are, that are failing our veterans. And we have to make sure that we get good qualified people in our Veterans Administration healthcare system that are taking care of our veterans and that we are allowing our veterans to get the help that they need and not putting them on hold when they call.
1: I was just talking to an active duty soldier, I guess it was last week on a, a Silky's hike. And he was telling me that, and, and this is, I guess within the last 12 months, he said that seeking help through the mental health providers on base, there's still a stigma there. He said you, you," oh, yeah. and I, I don't know, do you think it can ever change? Especially with, with the, you know, the the archetypal warrior who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't need help. Well, you know,
0: all Spartans have to put their shield down at some time. And, and so we have to be able to let our warriors know that it's okay to put your shield down. Doesn't mean that you're going to leave it there and it's going to get rusted over, but you need to have that, that, that moment of respite, that moment to open yourself up, and that's not a moment of weakness. That truly, to me, is the real indicator of a strong man or woman, a real warrior, to be able to say, hey, look, this is what's going on with me. These are these inner issues that I'm having. But the important thing is that the environment around cannot stigmatize, demonize, or look at this as an opportunity to categorize that veteran in a means by which they are punished for being open and honest about how they're feeling. And let's, you know, I'm on the board of National Rifle Association. I I talk to veterans about this all the time. Number one reason why a lot of veterans don't want to come out and, and talk about these issues, they're afraid they're going to lose their Second Amendment right. Yeah, and, and and when you hear about folks joint behavioral task forces and all of these type of things, red flag protection orders, that really works counter to having a lot of these young veterans or older veterans, you know, come out and say, you know, there there's some things that I need to talk to someone about. So we can't punish them for being open and honest.
1: Well, that's that's that damn stigma of the dangerous. Veteran who comes home, yeah. right? The one, you so know, I mean,
0: Paul Tano even talked about when she was uh, Homeland Security Secretary. She, she wrote memos about it. She said these, these are, you know, one of the most, I mean, threatening entities. I don't know. She said danger to uh, America, but she talked about veterans. Doing
1: yeah. That. Yeah. One of the most dangerous, but put an armed veteran within 20 feet of a active shooter and watch how quickly that will end. <laughs>
0: uh, Absolutely
1: right. How can we cut through the static and better prepare, I guess, I want to say families, but I guess society in dealing with veterans with mental health?
0: I think that, you know, podcasts like yours is important, but I also think that there needs to be more shows out there to talk about veterans. You know, I've always said, you know, why doesn't Fox or some of these other news outlets, they just have a a 30 minute show about veterans. And, and talk about various issues. And uh, I think that that keeps it at the forefront, and that identifies the good, the bad, the ugly, but at least we're continuing to have that conversation.
1: Sure. Yeah, technology has just given a voice to so many organizations. I mean, it's just this podcast alone, the amount of... I, I have an inbox of several hundred people that want to tell their stories, and it's just me, you know? So I, I'm doing one a week, and I tell them, I'm going to get to it, but... Yeah. Anyways, it, it's just amazing, and and all you have to do is look around your town, and every town has somebody helping somebody through something, and it's, it's it, does. it, it does. really says a lot about uh, how far we've come as a country and, and and how we're treating our veterans. One last question. What is next in your journey?
0: Well, like I said, I am running to be the, the chairman for the Republican Party of Texas. That uh, will occur, that election will occur at the state convention next may the 11th through the 16th of may in houston texas so we're doing a lot of traveling across texas uh tomorrow i'll be heading out and got an early breakfast uh event and then i'll drive down to fredericksburg texas over the weekend i'll be in victoria texas so it's just a way to continue to serve this great nation as i said and uh i just i just you know want to be obedient to god because uh, that's what it's all about a servant's heart you know our lord and savior jesus christ said that you know, the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. And that is truly what my heart is all about.
1: How can folks find you if they want to learn more about Alan West? And
0: Sure. You can follow me at theoldschoolpatriot.com. That's the everyday website that I'm on. I'm on Facebook as well, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I have a book that is out, Hold Texas, Hold the Nation, Victory or Death. You can get that on Amazon.com. And it's also an audio book. And if you want to follow our campaign to be the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, you go to West4Texas.com. That's West4Texas.com.
1: Well, Colonel West, I truly, truly appreciate uh, you taking the time because if it isn't for folks like you that take your time to, you know, talk to— I mean, what's weird about these podcasts is you got to imagine that, you know, it's just me and you in a room, but there's people all around us, you know, and they're veterans and they're listening and, and, uh, yeah, the story means a lot. Well, if-
0: I love them. God bless them. And I'm proud to stand and say that, uh, I'm the third or fourth generations of veterans in my family. And, uh. It, uh, that's the one of the greatest titles you can have
1: absolutely hey if you're not busy on November 2nd I recommend heading over to Round Rock Texas for the Silky Psych um, not sure if you're running for a position if you want to show that much thigh out in public but you know I'll just throw that out there <laughs> no problem alright thank you very much Colonel All thank right. you have Bye-bye. a great night you too Bye-bye. bye bye bye